Hello, and welcome to episode 103 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. I'm to make you aware of a couple things in the community happening. Uh, first one is the Minnesota Closure Users Group. That's going to be happening Wednesday, June 8th, 2016, at 7 p.m. at Software for uh, Good. And the topic will be Onyx. I'm sure you can find out lots more about that by searching for the Minnesota Closure User Group. Uh, the other one I want to mention is the Amsterdam Closure Meetup. That's happening uh, same day, Wednesday, June 8th, 2016, uh, at 7 p.m. at SciTac. I assume that's how you pronounce it, S-Y-T-A-C. Again, I'm confident that if you search for Amsterdam, uh, closure, Amsterdam closure Meetup, you will uh, discover the details that you need to know. Um, that's really it in terms of events that I want to announce. The only other thing I want to mention today is uh, I was a little curious. We, we have uh, implemented transcripts, as you might know. So every episode, a few days after it goes up, gets a full transcript of the entire uh, you know spoken portion of the podcast. Um, and I'm just wondering if anybody has found any interesting uses for those. We haven't uh, gotten any feedback one way or the other. I mean, we're definitely keeping the feature. Uh, you know, I think it's super useful for um, you know people to be able to discover what's in the show. And I think there's a bunch of other interesting uses that uh, are possible. But I'm wondering if anybody out there has found uh, a good use for the transcript. We just kind of we've been pretty psyched about this feature. We talked about doing it for a long time, finally implemented it. So if you have any feedback about that feature, um, we'd love to hear it. So you can send that to us through the usual usual channels, either tweet at Cognicast or email podcast at Cognitech.com. All right, so we will go ahead and go on to episode 103 of the Cognicast. I'm uh, I'm ready to begin if you are. Okay. Great. Okay, well, welcome, everybody. Today is Wednesday, May 25th, 2016, and this is the Cognicast. Uh, we're very, very pleased today to welcome back a guest we've had on several times, certainly one of our most popular guests. I'm definitely excited to talk to him, as always, and I'm talking about Rich Hickey. Welcome to the show, Rich. Thanks. That's great to have you on um, again, and we're pleased to have you back. Uh, we, we do have a question for you at the beginning and at the end. As I'm sure you're aware, since I just hit you with this, as I did everyone uh, when we were recorded for episode 100, uh, the question that we start off with these days is, uh, we ask our guests to relate some experience of art open to whatever interpretation they choose to put on. I think you're familiar with the questions. Uh, I wonder if uh, if you've got anything to share with us today. Yes, I was thinking back to... uh... Uh, a concert where I got to see the music of Harry Parch played on the instruments that he made himself. So he was a microtonal composer who, who made his own instruments because he wanted, you know, different scales. So he made some fantastic instruments, big xylophone like things and instruments made out of glass bowls and stuff like that. So it was, it was quite exciting musically and, uh, and to just see the amount of uh, individuality uh, to it. It was cool. So uh, microtonal music, is, you said that's alternative scales. It's presumably the, you know, not the standard, one of the standard uh, tunings. Is that what the, the idea there? That's right. That's right. In an effort to find intervals that are more uh, 
naturally harmonic, uh, you know, equal temperament that we use for music that divides the octave into 12 parts is not very, it's very regular, but it's not very natural. And so composers in the microtonal space uh, pick alternate tunings that allow intervals to be more perfect harmonically. So you might divide an octave into, you know, 30-something intervals instead of 12, which is what he did. So does that, I mean, so I'm, you know, that, obviously you've studied music, but for someone like me, you know, who is used to listening to conventional tunings, does that wind up being, do you think, challenging to listen to? Does it really, like, push your brain outside of its comfort zone in, in terms of music? Yes. I mean, initially it will sound out of tune. Uh, but that feeling goes away relatively quickly. I mean, obviously, Western music is just one kind of music, and there are other tuning systems uh, used you know, throughout the world uh, that don't work that way. But we're used to what we're used to. So it will sound out of tune initially, and then it will sound right uh, in a very strange way. Uh, what was particularly cool about this performance was that it was an opera. So not only were these instruments playing all of these uh varied pitches but the singers had to learn a completely new set of scales and had to effectively sing out of tune <laughs> <laughs> wow which is very very challenging whenever you see either singers or stringed instrument players play uh microtonal music you know they're they're working very hard to find and be precise about those other intervals yeah i can imagine so that's a that's an interesting and perhaps tortured segue into the, <laughs> the thing that I think uh, we probably want to talk about today. I mean, as is always the case on the show, you know, we're happy to talk about whatever the guests uh, think would be interesting. Um, however, uh, you know, we work together at least a little bit, and I, I kind of have a pretty good idea of where your head's been lately. And so I strongly suspect that what you would uh, like talked about today would be a closure spec. Am I right on that count? Yep. Okay, so... Um, I'm sure m most of our listeners will have seen the blog post and uh, whatever other uh, materials will have surfaced between the time that we're recording this and the, the time that uh, they hear it. But um, maybe if you wouldn't mind, you could kind of take us through uh, what closure spec is. The, I mean, I know you've you've got a, a story to tell around this. Uh, just I'll just hand it to you. Yeah, well, closure spec is fundamentally uh, a library. Uh, for writing specifications about data and uh, a set of supportive functions for using uh, those specifications in a variety of different ways and some modifications to some of the functions of closure to let them tap into specifications or specs uh, when they exist. Uh, so it's something that's going into closure proper it doesn't really modify the language. In fact, it doesn't modify the language at all. Uh, but it's going into closure so that it's a facility that everyone can presume is there, will be there by default, and can become sort of a lingua franca of, of how specification is done across systems. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the obvious, uh, perhaps, first question is uh, why, right? Like this, this, this idea of being able to describe... Um, uh, data is, is, is that it's uh, you, you, uh, available to everyone. Great, but why is it something that everyone should have available to them, in your opinion? Uh, so uh, I would delay that specific question, but and get back to sort of why. So the first thing about why is you know why why do you do anything? Hopefully you're doing it to try to solve some problems. 
and the problems that spec is trying to solve uh, are around um, the fact that being a dynamic language uh, we rely pretty heavily on documentation to talk about how our functions work you know what arguments they expect what they return and things like that um, and that documentation has limits i mean it's pretty it can be pretty decent in terms of human to human communication but it's very difficult or impossible to have programs tap into it and get uh, any kind of leverage out of that so trying to have a way to communicate about how our programs work that is stronger than you know english text uh, is the first thing um, the second thing is that uh, there's a category, you know, a set of data structure validation things that that cross a bunch of things that we do. The most obvious one is, you know, my function takes a data structure, or my my web service gets handed data structures, and I need to validate them. Uh, so that's a problem people have with data structures, and they end up doing a variety of things, including writing validation code by hand um, maybe not as obvious as the fact that uh, you know if you look at the closure survey there is a perennial complaint about error messages from macros and other things where in fact uh, people have been doing the same thing right including myself uh, macros are just functions of data to data uh, but they have an expectation about the shape of the data and they have its their own built-in validation which is often uh, you know, handwritten and is, you know, has varying, a varying amount of quality in the kinds of error reporting it does. Uh, so it's, it's a matter of looking across all of those things and saying, you know, are these the same problem? And I think they, they were. Um, another problem I, I think Spec chooses to solve is that we have some really good technology now for doing uh, property-based generative testing uh, in the closure space uh, that's implemented in test check, you know, which is a derivative of quick check, which originated in the Haskell world. Uh, and that kind of property-based testing is definitely the strongest, but it takes a fair amount of effort to learn how that works to write generators, to learn how to compose generators, to learn how to write properties and things like that. And if you are going to write a specification, um, that implies a lot uh, that could be or should be, in my opinion, leverageable by testing. So if we do bother to spend time writing uh, specifications for functions, maybe we should get generative testing uh, for free out of that. Um, so the fundamental idea in terms of the problems it solves is uh, to come up with a machine leverageable way to talk about how things work and then to get as much leverage out of it as we can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like, I like your point about uh, the, the macro error message ones. I hadn't, until you said it, I hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me, but, but of course it's obvious in retrospect you know, that it's a function that takes data and produces another kind of data. And of, of, of course, that's exactly what, oh, maybe I'm presuming, but that's exactly, seems like that's exactly what spec is aimed at. So it makes perfect sense. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, so these are the problems that you, that you wanted to solve. Uh, and 
there, there's some interesting um, – there's one interesting statement actually. Just look, I happen to have the uh, spec uh, rationale up in front of me, and we're kind of talking about that part. And I don't know – maybe I'm jumping ahead here and stop me if I am. But one of the things that comes up first here is uh, map should be specs uh, – map spec should be of key sets only, which, okay. which is a really interesting um, thing that I think is quite different from other similar things that I've seen before at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, maybe we'll come to that later, but if not, I, I'd love uh, for you to, to comment on that point because it's one that I found a little surprising when I first encountered it. Yeah, I, I do think it's uh, – it may be – you know, so the things that went into spec are long bre- brewing for me, um, and then I just had enough ideas to say, ooh, I think, I think this could be one answer to a bunch of, a bunch of concerns – uh, but actually, in the, in a different space, in the space of web services, uh, I encounter the same kind of problems that this map specification thing is, which is that we we combine the specification for an aggregate with the specification for its parts, um, which leaves us with a lot of rigidity in systems. And you can see this in you know the web service API. Uh, you know, becomes this thing, and it's both a set of operations and the specification of the operations. And similarly, map specs traditionally have been, here are the keys, and here's what the keys mean in the shape of the values at the keys. Um, And when we do this, we end up with uh, a bunch of things that are not good. One is our reuse is low, because now our definitions of these parts are context-dependent, and they're tied to the, the aggregate. Um, it's as if you know you were going to define what a tire is only inside defining what a car was. Well, that makes it hard to reuse tires you know, elsewhere as an idea. Uh, and, and, and that's what we're doing, and we do it in software everywhere. We do it in this little case in, with maps and keys, but we do it in the large, right, when we have source files and we add a comment to a file. <laughs> so we add a comment to a file, and that means we change the file, which means we change the library, which is just crazy. Uh, so we have to stop doing this. And in the web services space and other other work, I've been trying to fight this problem. And so when I looked at this problem of specification, I saw the same thing. It really, to me, it's the same problem. We shouldn't be uh, combining the specification of an aggregate, which should really be saying, I have these parts. You know, if you want to describe a car, you say it has, you know, a chassis and tires. Um, but, but you leave the description of what tires are to an independent description. When you do that, you get more reuse. And this matters t- tremendously as our systems become more dynamic. Because, well, especially in the data space, um, but even in the web services space, uh, you're, you're combining subsets and making intersections of sets all the time. You'll take some data you got from here and it had X, Y, and Z, and you took some other data from there that had A, B, and C, and then you hand the next piece of the program A and X, uh, and if the definitions of those parts are in the aggregates, then every single intersection and union and subset needs its own definition and will re-specify that same stuff again. 
Um, and I think that leads to rigidity in systems. And I think it actually doesn't work well at all in the fully dynamic case when I don't want to know necessarily what's flowing through this part of the system. I just want to convey it to another part of the system. So I don't, I don't want to take the requirements of somebody downstream from me and make them my requirements. I'd like that to be done sort of automatically. And when you combine this separation of concerns, you know, key uh, value, let's call it attribute definitions from map specifications, um, you get some really cool properties. Uh, when you combine that idea with namespaced keys, you get some really cool properties, like the ability to check keys, even though they're not part of the map spec at this moment. In other words, I said I, I expect A, B, and C, and if you happen to pass me X and there's a spec for X, that will get checked, even though I don't care about X. I'm just flowing it through this part of the system. Yeah, that uh, the thing that reminds me of, and I have to imagine this is no accident, is you know in in Datomic the the idea of schema being defined at the attribute level, and kind of an analogy there between you know entities having a set of attributes and maps having a set of keys, and the specifications being essentially at the uh, the attribute level and not at the overall aggregate level. Right, and you know, I, I would definitely point to you know RDF as as prior art in terms of thinking about properties that uh, they called them uh, independent of aggregates. I mean, they, property definitions have stood on their own. Now, of course, in RDF, they're you know without combining it with RDF schema or something else, you know, the properties are just names. Um, but the idea was that they could be freely applied to different things. Um, and if there were going to be semantics, they would be associated with the property itself and not in the context of some aggregate. Um, it's pretty it's pretty easy to underestimate how much this is costing us in software development. I think it's basically a catastrophe the way we're approaching aggregates. Um, it's something I would really like to fix. Is there any... Uh, this is vague, but I'm, I'll ask the question anyway. Is there any relationship between... The, the ideas we're talking about and, and sort of the the move that a closure programmer tends to make in their mind away from uh, the rigidity of something like a Java class with a set of named very specifically typed properties into the more open data types enabled by something like closures maps. You know what I mean? Because I think of the Java now, I think of Java objects as being these little locked up boxes that can only hold certain things and, and that's it. And that's really limiting compared to something like closure where I can say I have a map and it's, it's much more extensible, more, more fluid, more open. Is, is there any analogy to be drawn there? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, and, and that's part of why spec is the way it is and why spec can be the way it is. Uh, because, uh, yeah, we've already, you know, in, in, in closure, we tend to just use maps and, and then when you start using a specification system that wants you to define aggregates, well, you, you start defining things a lot more like classes again. And you start having the same problems that you got rid of when you moved from classes to maps, which is uh, that rigidity, right? When you use maps, you can just associate new keys into a map, right? All maps are open. You can take two maps and you can merge them. You can take subsets of maps and you don't need to define a new named entity for every possible combination, every set of keys, I would say, in this language now. 
um, which is something you do in in uh, in Java or you know languages similar to that. Uh, so it seems it seems important to me that we end up with a specification system that is compatible with this approach to data, which is a dynamic compositional approach, not a named entity approach. Yeah, and an important attribute of that, that that I think that you mentioned earlier was the idea that uh, you know we use namespace keys, which I think is another thing that a lot of people um, are going to find to be a change from the way. I mean, certainly from the way I write programs, I often uh, write uh, programs that uh, use unnamespace keys. Um, although you know, having worked with Datomic, um, you know, the idea of using namespaces on my attributes is pretty familiar. But I haven't really um, broadly made the transition to doing that in my closure programs. But it seems like the way spec is written um, points out that that is a good idea and um, doesn't force you down that road, but really encourages it. Does that seem accurate? Yeah. So, I mean, to be clear, it does not force that. Um, you know, spec is designed to be compatible with what people are doing, which, as you said, is largely not namespaced keys. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't support that by giving up on that fundamental uh, idea, which is therefore, <laughs> you know, we're going to put the definitions in 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 the aggregate, which we still don't do that. Uh, spec has a, a system whereby you can say, I expect a non namespaced key, uh, but I'm going to tell you to use this namespaced uh, name to find a spec for it. And that gives you a bridge. It allows you to keep, you know, taking the data that you're taking today and connect it to specifications that are properly named. Um, and uh, you get a lot of the benefits. The only benefit you don't get is that uh, the thing I mentioned earlier, where even if a key is not present in your current map spec, um, it could get validated. If the keys are not namespaced, they can't get validated because, you know, the word name or ID you know, doesn't have a universal semantic. It's got to be qualified in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I think it's a great bridge. Uh, but yes, um, I'd like to see more namespaced keys, and uh, you know, we're adding a little bit of syntax to closure to make that you know even easier, literally just easier, uh, so that um, you know people do more of it. I don't. I don't know where that work is at right now. Is that something that you'd be ready to describe, even in rough terms, the the work in closure to make that uh, more syntactically, uh, I don't know, whatever the word is, easier? I guess is a good word. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's 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 pretty straightforward. It's essentially, you just have a prefix before a map that says this is the default namespace for keys in this map. So the map looks like it used to before. You just say you know colon x colon y colon z, uh, but you could say you know that's in my namespace and effectively. Uh, one, you say my namespace once, and all your keys are qualified with that. Uh, and that's both something that you can write, and therefore the reader can read. And it's also uh, an enhancement made to printing. So if all your keys have a consistent namespace, um, the printer will lift that to being a qualifier on the map. Uh, and there is similar uh, support in destructuring. I'm reminded of uh, XML default namespaces, although um, 
you know, given people's sort of emotional reaction to XML, maybe that's not the right, not a comfortable analogy. But, well, I mean, you can think whatever you want about XML, but the fact that they uh, thought about namespaces is, a, is, you know, definitely correct. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, it's, anyway, I won't go into the, anyway, I was going to go on a rant, but I'll stop. Sorry, well, go ahead. Well, the closing tags were the truly terrible idea. Yeah, my rant was going to be about JSON, but uh, some other time, maybe. Um, uh, okay, so, um, yeah, so that, that makes sense to me. Um, uh, there's a, I mean, again, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but I think one of the other, you know, as I think about spec and think about the things in there that when I looked at them, I'm, uh, I'm like, oh, that that's interesting. I need to dig into that more to really understand it. One of the things that jumped out at me was, um, you know, this idea of regular expressions and, you know, of course, the fact that we're not talking about, you know, regex st string describing, you know, uh, Perl-like uh, patterns of characters, but, but a regular expression uh, grammar for pulling apart sequences. That's something that seems kind of newish or at least unfamiliar to me. Uh, I wonder if you could comment on that. Well, I mean, most of the systems that do this kind of thing have those kinds of operators. They'll have star and question mark and whatnot, um, but they won't necessarily be regular expressions, and 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 therefore they're somewhat ad hoc and their properties are harder to pin down. Uh, Sorry. But I want to interrupt you because I, I actually wasn't familiar with the formal definition of regular expressions. So if you could differentiate between that and what what uh, people might think of as regular expressions, that'd be helpful. If if you I, see what I'm saying. I, well, that that wasn't what I was saying. I mean, so regular expressions. I mean, you can go to Wikipedia. It's, it has a very small vocabulary, right? There's concatenation. This thing should be next to that. There's star, which says a repetition of zero or more of these things. There's alternation, which says this or that, um, this pattern or that pattern. It's not just logical or. It's a, alternatives in the pattern. Um, and there's empty in the math. And um, with these things, you can build the other stuff you're used to seeing in string regular expressions like plus and question mark, which is you know one or more and zero or one. But those two are not primitive. But those very small sets of primitives can describe all regular grammars. And, uh, but they have important properties uh, and so one of the things that's appealing to me is that when you take a system like this and you say there are bottom predicates, uh, which we don't expect to change, and then there are really only two kinds of things in the world. The, the spec idea about this says there are associative things and there are sequences. And associative things work with that key specification we were talking about before which has important supportive math behind it, right? The idea of, you know, set logic, intersection and union, things like that. We can, we understand how to do that stuff. Similarly, there are, there are important properties of regular expressions. And while I think this, so, so I think the first benefit you get from limiting a system like spec to things that are very, very simple, I would say, like these two things, uh, is that the resulting compositionality is great. Um, but the other thing you get, which spec doesn't currently deliver, but is part of the idea behind spec, is that uh, we need to get better about talking about whether or not something has changed 
right now we have just this giant ad hoc system where I don't think I broke you, so I'm going to call something 1.5. And I did think I broke you, so now I'm going to call it 2.0. And did I break you or not? I don't know. You can run my code, your code with my new code and tell me I did, and I think I didn't. And like, we have no way to talk about this <laughs> mathematically or scientifically or you know, in a robust way. Uh, but it's quite another thing to say, well, I, I required these keys as a set. And now I require fewer keys. Well, that's something that we know is compatible mathematically, right? Um, similarly, there are operations on regular expressions that allow you to say that this regular expression um, satisfies or you know conforms to all the cases of another one. Uh, with these two properties, we're going to be able to talk about whether or not um, you're allowed to modify a spec or if a, if, a, if a potential future version of a specification is compatible with a prior one in a very rigorous way. And I think that's gigantic uh, because what I'd like to do is move to a world wherein either your specs are compatible with the past or you pick a new name. And we stop using the same names for different things, which we do all the time in software. It's just created this crisis of versioning and dependencies. And it's all a human problem because we're not thinking precisely enough about what it means to change something, what the granularity is to depend on something. Uh, like I said before, adding a comment to a file changes the library, et cetera, et cetera. But it didn't. I mean, if I was using a function in that file, it didn't affect me. It didn't change what I was doing. So we need to go to a finer granularity in how we think about dependencies, and we need to become more rigorous about saying, you know, I'm never going to get, I'm never going to change something under the same name in an incompatible way. Uh, and it's like, you know, well, you, I know you're an old com programmer. Mm -hmm. right? so what were the rules with com? The rules were, if you're going to change it, you add, you know, to it to the end or ex, right? Mm -hmm. And those were good rules. We need to get back there. If we had fine-grained uh, specifications and dependencies, we would not be uh, thinking we were changing things when we weren't. And you'd realize that things change a lot less frequently than you think. And you'd have a lot better sense of, I have a new library. Does that, you know, what do I have to worry about? Because uh, usually it's nothing especially in Clojure where there are libraries of functions that are substantially pure and independent from one another. Um, but instead we're living the awful life of, you know, Java programmers with, with a technology for talking about change that's based around things being just a free for all of mutation and, and spaghetti. Um, so as we start using more mathematical languages, we really should start doing, versioning and dependencies and change management in different ways and something like spec that has these primitive operations and these fundamental mathematical ideas about sets and regular expressions gives us some foundation we can use to say this is different or it's compatible yeah, as a, it's, it's funny I mean I've actually spent the last three days working at uh, my client um, won't go into the details, but but it's a story that's familiar to anybody that's worked in software where you know 
version upgraded, everything broke. And uh, it's uh, it, the, the reason why it's not entirely clear at this point. But I, I think the other thing I'm reminded of is, um, uh, uh, you know, we did the 100th episode recently, and one of the questions I asked everybody was, you know, what's one important thing you've learned? And um, I think one thing that people said that they've learned at Cognitech is how to how to how to approach change right i mean and 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 this idea that i mean there's obviously immutability but there's also what you're talking about which i think is is not let's just keep every version of everything but let's understand you, you know what change really means and and when it's okay to make that type of change or what the impact is and when it's nothing um yeah and and i think we should do less changing I mean, actually i think we should stop changing things in incompatible ways and keeping the names the same mm-hmm. We should just stop doing that. Um, so that that explains why regex. <laughs> right. No, it's it's, it's super long. useful. Uh, I found it fascinating, and I'm sure listeners will as well. Um, uh, so so yeah. So um, just think. So so one of the things again, just sort of paging through in my head as I read the. Uh, the rationale, you know, what were the things that jumped out at me? One of the ones that was interesting to me was uh, this idea that um, destructuring is kind of a is kind of a part of this story. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, let me slot that in context because sure. I think I think uh, you know I talk about what problems is it set out to solve, but not very much about what it delivers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I talked earlier about um, these are the, these are the problems that are out there in the world and it would be nice to sort of write specs once and get a bunch of things. Uh, so what are those things? You know, um, closure is often about leverage. You know, the, the, there's a word I like to use, um, you know, you, you apply some a little bit of effort, and you got a lot of leverage from it. You 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 make a uh, an abstraction, and if you're able to use it across a lot of data structures, you get a lot of leverage. People, it's something people appreciate about closure. They don't necessarily see coming when they arrive, and then they're like, oh look, you know, Soch works on this on all these things, and Seek works, and all the Seek functions work, and and so there's leverage everywhere. So say, we're looking for the same thing here. So we're going to write a spec. And then what do we get for doing that, right? Because it's effort. And especially, you know, you have to learn about the operators of spec. And then there's a combination of these key set operators and some logical operators and then the regular expression operators. And, you know, you'll have to learn a little bit and sort it out and learn how to read them. Um, but what do you get? So you get validation, first of all, which you expect, right? I wrote a specification. I should be able to say, does this thing conform to this spec? Uh, and Typically, validation is sort of a yes or no. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. Um, you should get error reporting. So if it's not valid, it would be nice if uh, the system automatically uh, would be able to do a good job of telling you what's wrong. And that's something that you want to use when you're trying to use spec to specify you know, how your macro works, but it's also something you might want to use at the front door of your web service when people are sending you, you know, data structures and they may be malformed. You need to talk to them about what they got wrong. Um, so there's error reporting. Um, destructuring is is interesting, right? Because 
what happens is if you're only given something that says yes or no, then you can have quite an elaborate spec. You say, I expect you to give me, you know, uh, a number in this range and then a list of, you know, uh, several numbers followed by some other stuff and a map with these things and then one of these three choices. And a validator comes and looks at somebody's data and says, it's good. It's what you said. Then what's the first thing your code needs to do? <laughs> well, it needs to find all those parts, right? You talked about the parts in your specification, and maybe some of them were optional. So your code needs to know what, what options were present and which ones weren't, or which branch did they take? You said that you could do this or that or that, you know, X or Y or Z. Which was it, X or Y or Z? Um, you said you were going to have this map with these keys. How can I talk about them? And so, again, you, when you do this kind of work, you try to find the analogies. And there's a lot of analogies to the error reporting. Right? If I'm going to talk to you about what's wrong, I need to talk about the shape of your data and the shape of the specification, quite importantly. And, uh, and then, you know, you got something wrong. But if you're destructuring you really want the same kinds of things. In other words, you went through invalidation and you found all the parts and you decided they were all okay. But in if the specification system made you name every place where there was a branch or a choice. So for maps, they already have names, right? All the keys are names of branches. That's a way to think about it. But spec makes you say, if you have an or, it makes you label all the possibilities. If you have an alt in a regex, it makes you label those possibilities. And in doing so, it means that there's a way to talk about any part of the spec, any individual subbranch. If you think about the spec as being this tree of possibilities, there's a way to talk about any part. And that's the path system of spec. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's something that's present that, again, will be unusual to people you know why do i have to label the parts of my or why do i have to label the various possible branching points in a regular expression but what you get for that is a the ability to talk about um, parts of your spec which is used during error reporting this part you didn't match this part you didn't satisfy this sub spec but it's also used by destructuring because the same labels you use in your spec are used to label the data um, in what's called conforming. So in spec, there is valid question mark, you know, just a validator that's Boolean. But the more interesting function is conform, which takes the data and a spec and gives you a destructured, labeled version, if you will, of the data, where every branching point uh, that was determined, detected, uh, the result of it was labeled. So if you had some arbitrary complex predicate that you needed to satisfy, and it was one of three, you know, X or Y or Z, and and it matched Y, there'll be a key there that says Y is what they supplied. And your code won't need to figure that out again because the spec did that and destructured it and labeled it. Um, so there's a path system in spec. It's part of the design. Everywhere there's a branch, there's a label. And therefore, spec can do destructuring and everything talks the same language. If you're going to get an error report, it's going to relate your problem to the path. If you're going to get destructured data, it's going to label the data with names that correspond to the path. 
And we can do other cool things with those paths. For instance, as I get down the list of things that spec can do, one of the things it can do is generate data. And sometimes, you know, you want a certain kind of generator for testing, which generates nasty, random, everything data. But other times you want a generator that generates pretty data that you can use as an example. So um, how do you talk about substituting a generator? Well, it's easy to talk about substituting the root generator for the whole object, but it's also very interesting to talk about in this subtree, I'd like to generate the data differently in this context. Because we have paths, we can talk about that subtree in our spec. Um, and this is just a radical difference, I think, in spec. Uh, and I think that this, you know, generator override labeling is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of being able to talk about parts of our data structures. Uh, because when you think about it, if you combine the fact that um, specs are namespaced names, you know, they're registered under namespaced names, it means that any part of a spec has a global address, right? The namespace plus the path to that part. That is cool. That means that you could build a web service that you know had additional explanations for the kinds of errors you might get in this, you know, trying to conform to this part of a spec. And people could call that and know how to talk to it because there are ways to talk about the parts. So that's how destructuring works and that's why it's there. Um, the other thing that you get from having defined a spec is what we call instrumentation. And this is where you know, being in a dynamic language has some real advantages. The things you can check for in specs are pretty arbitrary. Um, it's not just, you know, is this an integer or things like that or, or structural things. You can have predicates that say, you know, this argument has this relationship to this other argument. A simple case would be, I want to write a generate a random number in a range function. And it should take a start and end part for the range and the end should be greater than the start. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that's hard to do maybe traditionally with types because it's not a type of either part it's a it's a predicate across the two parts similarly you can say of, of a function overall that the result should have this relationship to the input and this is the kind of thing that you would use in a generative property test but the cool thing is that if you've defined these specs you can while you're working in the REPL turn them on as a runtime check around you know, an individual function that's been spec specified or an entire library or everything that has specs. And then proceed doing your work in the REPL and getting all these maybe expensive tests to run for everything you do. And this instrumentation is not something that you'd leave on in production, uh, but you can easily work with instrument instrumentation uh, while you're doing interactive development. You can also instrument libraries so when you're doing uh, bigger tests, so maybe you have system level tests that you know, walk your, your big system through big workflows, uh, you could turn on instrumentation during that testing and get those, those uh, specifications validated while you're running your ordinary processing uh, during testing. Um, so that's dynamic instrumentation. The next thing you get from writing a spec is you get test data generation. If you said, I expect to have you know, inputs of this shape. Um, you can just make a call and say, generate me something in that shape. And you'll get 
data that you can look at. Um, so one of the interesting things that uh, spec has is something called exercise, which you, know, you give it a spec and it will generate a bunch of instances of that spec and run them through conform and give you pairs of, I generated this data and I conformed it and here's what it looks like when it's conformed. And you can use that for testing or just to validate your presumptions. So it's very interactive. And the final you know, sort of big kahuna of, of spec is the fact that it will generate generative tests for you. So if you spec functions, you will get property-based generative testing of those functions. So spec has, you know, test my function or test my namespace. And those tests are test check generative tests. So it will generate 100 different inputs that correspond to your specification, run your function, validate your returns against that specification, and then do this fancy final spec, which is the, the function spec, we call it, which can compare uh, or utilize the input and the output to a function and test any predicates you want across the two. Um, so that's very powerful. The generative tests support higher order functions. So spec can generate functions for you. If you have a function that returns a function, spec will recursively go and generatively test the function you've returned to see that it matches its specs. Uh, and remember, these specs are not just, you know, takes an int, returns an int. Um, they can be arbitrary predicates of both the input, the output, different arguments to the input, and the relationship between the input and the output. So um, I think that's just going to be the way you want to do unit testing. And you just will not write unit tests um, the way you have before, because as we know, you know, test check and property-based testing, uh, you know, derived from quick check, uh, it's just great at finding bugs. It, it writes tests you never would. It tries data you would never try. It can do you know hundreds and hundreds of tests when you would be tired after writing three tests. And if it detects a problem, it will shrink your input to be the smallest failing case. So this is the kind of testing that I like, um, the testing you don't have to write, uh, that does the best job of detecting bugs. Yeah, that's really cool stuff. I, and you actually dropped one little gem that uh, Tim Ewald had uh, mentioned to me the other day, and and I had a little bit of a Keanu Reeves whoa moment when I heard, and and you just said it, which was, you know, you can spec a function that returns a function, and you'll get generative testing against the returned function if you if you spec out what it's supposed to do, which is which is just super meta and very, very cool in my opinion. It's, a, it's a one thing among many, but it, I just found that to be, for some reason, just kind of got me, kind of gripped me as a neat thing. Yeah, well, I mean, the other thing is that for that function, uh, spec can could make that function for you. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it's, <laughs> it's not going to be a very interesting function. But if you think about trying to test generatively functions that take functions... Well, I mean, you're trying to make it automatic. So where are they supposed to come from? I mean, typically, if you're going to test a function that takes a function, you'd have to like supply one and name it. So the fact that spec can write functions matters because it means that that way it can automatically test functions that take functions without you having to say, well, if you need a function that takes an int and returns an int, you know, use increments or something. Mm -hmm. You need to say that. 
Yeah, it's another type of data that you need to come up with somehow because we work with that form of, I mean, maybe data is the wrong word, but that is a thing that we give to our functions all the time. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's so cool. <laughs> well, Rich, one of the reasons I always enjoy hearing you talk about this stuff is because you have a, a wonderful ability to kind of tell the whole story. So, uh, you know, I could keep sort of casting around in my mind trying to think, oh, yeah, what else did I see in the in the uh, – in the rationale, but uh, I know for a fact that you have a, a pretty good picture of what's in spec. So I'll just ask you straight up: Is there anything else in spec that we haven't uh, that we haven't at least touched on today? Um, yeah, I guess the one other thing, and you know, so we're into sort of like gravy features, mm-hmm. uh, which is well, which is sort of fine. We like gravy. Yeah, we like gravy. So uh, let me just see what we've got. Yeah, so um, we didn't talk much about the map checking. Uh, maybe it's obvious, right? So map checking checks the keys for the presence in the key set and then independently checks that the values at keys match the specs, the independent specs for the, um, the attributes. I, I think one of the other cool things that spec can do, uh, which is uh, a recent addition is um, a common problem people have is they have data that's whose types are self-describing. This is quite typical when you're getting stuff over wires. So there's some there's some field in the in the structure which says my type is X. Uh, so there's a type tag or a type attribute. And the challenge you have is that, it's the value of that attribute that determines what spec should really be used. You know, if the, if the type tag says I'm a, you know, an employee information record, well, that should get one kind of spec run against it. And if the type tag says I'm a, a product descriptor, that should have a completely different kind of spec run against it. And so, you know, the challenge is, you know, obviously spec has or, uh, but OR is really not a great tool for open large sets, right? You don't want to build something that says if it's an employee, do this, or if it's a product, do that, or if it's you know a truck, do that. Any more than you want giant switch statements, right? This is why we invented polymorphism. So how do we get polymorphism in specifications? Uh, and the answer for spec is something called multi-spec, which allows you to connect a spec or to make a spec who's, uh, who, which, which dynamically determines the spec by calling a closure multi-method. And this directly allows spec to connect to an already existing good um, data-driven dispatch, polymorphic dispatch system that has always been in closure pretty much. Uh, which is multi-methods. So now instead of having a, a big OR in your spec, which would be this mega spec that had that knew about everything, you have a multi-spec that says, this multi-method will tell you what spec to use. And it will look at that type tag or tag field or whatever and find the spec. And this is open. So you know if on the first day there's only one method for this multi-method, then the spec will only check for one thing. Uh, but if tomorrow there are two things, it will check for two things. 
Uh, and similarly, it will also generate in an open way. So if on the first day you've only defined two methods, it will define two kinds of things. It will generate two kinds of things. Uh, but if as your system grows, you now have 100, it will generate one of 100 kinds of things. Um, so I think this is a good, uh, you know, dynamic system for solving the tag data problem. And, and uh, so I think that's another sort of cool, cool feature. Uh, I agree. And actually, uh, we kind of been showing spec to... Uh, our clients uh, on the project I'm on, and uh, that was one of the first things they asked is, well, how would you do handle this case? And, and multi-spec was, was exactly what they were asking about, really. And so it, clearly it's something that people are asking for um, in this space. Um, but it, it does raise a point, which you address in the rationale, I, I think, which is that this isn't really spec, that is to say, isn't really a data format, right? It's not, it's not, always something you can put in an Eden file. Am I expressing that correctly? Uh, you know, I, I think it's somewhat uh, controversial about, you know, what, what, makes a, what makes something a data-driven thing. Uh, spec certainly is data-driven. Um, some of its input data is code, which is data, and it does treat that code as data, and it does remember that code as data. And it can regurgitate that code as data. There's a couple of functions in spec that allow specs to describe themselves. Uh, and they can describe themselves in a way that's sort of for a human to read in a documentation string, but they can also describe themselves in a very precise way with all of the namespacing and whatnot necessary so that you could reevaluate um, the data and get a working spec. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so the question is, you know, is that data, you know, is, is a bunch of lists nested data? And of course it is. I mean, that's, that's why, you know, lists work and that's how read works. So I think it's not maps. That doesn't make it not data. Mm. Uh, and one of the beautiful things about spec, and I, I think we will get there pretty soon so that this is clearer to people, is if you have specs for the describe output of spec, which is basically looks like code, but is data. If you have specs for those things, which we are, you know, we have some, we haven't yet published, you're only a conform call away from seeing that same data in a mappy kind of way with, 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 you know, keys and values. Mm. Uh, And, and I think that people need to start thinking that way, that, uh, that specifications give them the ability without writing a parser or having to understand a lot of stuff um, to do data uh, representational transformations that will give them what they want without spec having to be different. Um, I think the flip side is uh, many people try to design DSLs in this space where you know it's all maps, but there's tons of semantics on the maps. I don't know if you've ever tried to like look at or read you know, uh, some of the systems that encode functions in JSON, like <laughs> AWS does sometimes. Yeah. Uh, you know, code is data, but not all data is code. And sometimes uh, when you want something that really has the abilities and capabilities of code and the writability of code and the readability of code for people who are the primary authors of specifications, code, especially as represented in a, in a highly readable Lisp like closure 
is the best possible DSL format. And that's the opinion of spec. And so, yes, we can get it into a shape you might prefer to program with, but it's no less data from the get-go uh, than any other format. Gotcha. Makes sense. Thanks. Um, well, I, uh, we, Rich, you, you, uh, maybe, maybe even more than, than most of our guests are permitted to talk here for as long as you would care to. I can pretty much guarantee our listeners would, are, are sitting, some of them are sitting in their driveways, even as, even as we are virtually speaking this in their ears. Um, that said, I don't want to keep you forever, um, uh, but I do want to, um, give you a chance to, uh, hit any other points, if any, about spec or for that matter, about anything else, uh, you'd like to share with our uh, listeners today. Uh, yeah, I think we're pretty good. I mean, people, people should go and read the documentation and whatnot, because I don't think we've fully described, um, you know, how you would use spec or some of the other things that it does. I guess the two points I would want to make sure were clear were in the, the other area of what I called spec was, you know, how does it integrate with closure? And the two big areas are that if you write specs, they will appear in doc strings when you ask for documentation. Uh, and the other is that if you've written a spec for a macro, um, macro expand will automatically use it to uh, validate the, the user's input. So just by writing, even if you've written your macro the old-fashioned way and you've got a handwritten checker that may be not so great with error reporting that's not so great, if you write a spec for it, you do not need to touch your macro code at all that spec will get run by macro expand and the error reporting will be that of spec if people, you know, uh, had an error in the way they called your macro. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an important feature of spec that the specs are independent of the code they may describe. They can be added later. They don't require you to change what you were doing before. Um, but they still give you leverage. Good stuff. And this is all coming uh, in as far as the uh, closure integration in, in 1.9, which you and the rest of the team are hard at work on even as we speak. Yeah. I mean, the alpha is out already and people are, <laughs> are using spec a lot, quite, <laughs> quite frankly, in the first two days. So I, I think uh, it addresses uh, a set of, of needs uh, across, across the board. Um, so people doing all kinds of interesting things already. Yeah. People are, I mean, I know we were pretty excited. I, I got to see the, uh, you know, and I know that you know, there was a lot of excitement internally. I could, I, I got to see you and the rest of the team kind of working on the weekend to get it out the door, and then the you know, the, the Twitter. How, I guess I'll ask you, how did the launch go from your perspective? It seemed like it went really well from where I was sitting. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Like I said, I, mean, I do think people are hungry for this. Um, it solves a lot of independent problems. Um, I think everybody has their part of it that they're seeing and their needs that they're most interested in and um there there's a lot to it they'll discover over time uh but yeah i thought it, i thought it's been great and some of the feedback has been great and it's already been integrated we've you know knocked out some bugs and we've added some features based upon input so you know i'm looking forward to uh making it really great cool well, uh, that seems like a great place to wrap it up. But of course, uh, I do have one more question for you. The question we end every show with has to do with advice. We always ask our guests to share with our listeners a piece of advice, uh, whether advice they've received or advice they like to give. Just 
something in the way of advice. So I wonder if you had a chance to think of anything to share with us today, Rich. Uh, I'll, I'll keep it on topic. I would say my advice uh, will be about spec, and it will be to uh, make sure that you consider spec to be a suite of small, composable tools. Uh, like I said before, I'm, I'm not sure it would be evident to anyone that, you know, getting some data that's in the shape of code into something that's more map-like, it's just a matter of calling conform on it with the spec. Uh, you need to look at the pieces of spec as, as uh, very small utilities you can bring to bear in a variety of different circumstances. Uh, for instance, you know, we're thinking about, you know, what's the test suite for, for spec going to look like and how do we, you know, test these regexes or whatnot. And, you know, you just want to pick up spec for jobs like that, right? You can take, you can make specs for spec itself. You could run a generator on that and get specs to be written. You could then run a generator on that to get data that conform to the specs. And then you could run conform on that to make sure it was working and therefore check spec with spec with two generating steps in the middle. One that makes specs, which are data, obviously, because you can generate them. One that takes those specs and generates data. Uh, it's just one example of the kind of, of tool change you might be able to put together. So I would say, you know, maybe you're thinking about testing. Maybe you're thinking about macros. Maybe you're thinking about your DSL. And all those things are good. Uh, but spec is fundamentally simple, and it has a bunch of small reusable parts and I would my advice would be to encourage people to be uh, creative and open-minded about when they might apply it because it has more applications than you might imagine well rich unsurprisingly you have once again offered us amazing advice although I can almost guarantee that uh, I will benefit even more from it the second or third time that I listen to it because some of what you said is still Still sinking in, but I, I can already kind of see the edges of, of, um, of the utility. Anyway, but thanks a ton for that and for taking the time to uh, come on today and chat with us about, about spec. I think uh, the docs are great. I mean, I've read them all, and uh, I think it's, it's actually quite clear and, 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 and uh, you know, easy to understand. But, uh, I, you know, I, 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 for one, always kind of enjoy getting to, to chat back and forth about these things, and hopefully our listeners... Uh, uh, thought that was helpful too. So thanks a ton for for coming on and talking to us today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I also want to you know give a shout out to Stu and Alex Miller who uh, who helped with this, and in particular uh, the guide uh, Alex Miller wrote. So uh, he gets a lot of credit for helping with the storytelling there. Excellent. But thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, then we will we will say goodbye there. This has been the Cognacast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc. Cognitech are the makers of Datomic, and we provide consulting services around it, closure, and a host of other technologies to businesses ranging from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web cognitech.com slash podcast 
You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest today was Rich Hickey on Twitter at Rich Hickey, R-I-C-H-H-I-C-K-E-Y. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson and Damian Mack. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.